Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Okay. All right. So, welcome to our cheeriest. You're gonna have to talk a lot louder than that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Welcome to our cheeriest episode yet. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) It's all about abortion this week. Abortion. (laughs) My favorite activity. Well, given that we are, (laughs) you know, liberal, left-wing, man-hating, feminist degenerates. what i do every weekend yeah that's like our fun girl activity just gal pal activity (laughs) girls night first we get wine then we get an abortion then we watch a movie (laughs) yeah that's uh not how that works (laughs) never how that has worked ever for like all of history (laughs) so we're going to talk about that today yes we are And we're going to talk about, you know, as per usual, I'm going to start us off in the classical world, and then Mark Mm -hmm. will take it away Mm -hmm. into the future. The future. But, yeah, I think, uh, as we stated in our last episode, the reason we divided up birth control slash contraception and abortion, even though historically these would have been much more blurred lines between these two practices. Essentially the same things until the late 1970s. Yeah. We, well, I mean, unless we're talking about, like, you know, like, the pull-out method or, like, stuff like that, right? Like, yeah. the, the point is, we have separated this in a way that would be ahistorical, but we're doing it because today there are, it's such a morally contentious issue and such a, like, politically contentious issue that we wanted it to really have its own episode. And we didn't want to conflate the two because i really can't stress this enough that like taking the pill is not an abortion (laughs) even if well no because i know there is like there are oh don't worry i'll be talking about it (laughs) that that is a thing and it is not and we wanted to be very clear on that so let's start out with early history times from what we know i mean Again, it's not the most, uh, it, it's not the most recorded thing, because a lot of things that deal with women's bodies historically were pretty hush-hush. Um, but there are some texts that survive from the classical period, both from the Greeks and the Romans, that indicate that abortion was something that was performed, and while there's debate about how frequent this was and how common it was, it, for the most part, does not seem to have been, like, by and large, it doesn't seem to have been, like, explicitly banned or prosecutable. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, there, it it's very unlikely that this was punishable by law. There are 
some claims that abortion might have been a crime in ancient Athens, and it would be the wife committing a crime against the husband because the unborn baby belongs to the husband, and if she aborts that fetus, then she has, like, denied her chi- her her husband his rightful child slash right. heir, right? So this okay. is very, um, and, but again, this is based off of a fragment of poetry <laughs> where this is mentioned, so, like, we don't know right. if this was just, like, someone thought this, or if this was actually, you know, again, we don't know if this was referring to real life, or if this was something about, you know, uh, shall, shall we say some creative license, where, you know, talking about feelings. <laughs> um, but we do know that they for sure were performing abortions, because we do have Seranus, who's a second century Greek physician, who prescribed diuretics, enemas, fasting, and bloodletting as assorted abortion methods. Um, We also have Tertullian, who was a second and into the third century Christian theologian, um, describing surgical implements that were used um, in abortions, which would be very similar to surgical abortions today, where he talks about basically a tool that would cause dilation um, and a, quote, blunted or covered hook used for extraction. So, essentially a DNC. Yes, exactly. So, it seems like people had both, you know, access to surgical abortions and to non-surgical options. Same as today, just probably a lot less safe because, you know, there's no, uh, they're they're not maybe doing the best at sterilizing everything and no antibiotics. antibiotics, Yeah. Um, And as we've talked about before, there were a lot of remedies right where using um like natural herbs and plants that would cause uh the return of the menses <laughs> um so we have records of things like tansy juniper even things like opium being used to bring on the menstrual cycle and the thing is in terms of you know even in terms of morality, there there were debates about it, but it seems to have been a lot more flexible than it is today, and there's a lot more gray area. So, you know, for example, we look at Stoic belief. They just outright thought that abortion didn't matter at all because the fetus was plant-like in nature rather than animal-like because it doesn't you know, they thought it didn't have the, the animus, the soul, right. the, you know, it, it was plant-like in that it was growing and attached to you. So if you performed an abortion, it didn't matter. Like it was no different than, you know, cutting down a tree or like harvesting crops. Like you're yeah. not killing, right? I feel like this fits into the realm of a beaver is a fish because it lives in water. Oh, we're getting to that part. <laughs> oh 
my god, wait, are you actually going to talk about beavers being fish in this episode? Uh, I wasn't going to talk about beavers being fish, but we can talk about that <laughs> because there's a lot of that kind of thinking that okay. goes into because we did later. We, we did talk. Ideas. We did talk about this. In the uh, Lent episode, I believe. Yeah, in Lent, where we talked about the weird things that you are allowed to eat yeah. to survive Lent and beaver and puffin and other things that... A hippopotamus, I believe, is also a <laughs> yeah, fish. Yeah, things that, things that live in water that are clearly not fish. That, you, <laughs> that count as fish for the purpose of, of Fridays. Yes. Yeah, so this is a lot like this, where it's like... Uh, this is this is a different type of thing, but we get into that a little bit later. Okay. Now Aristotle decided that there was a line between lawful and unlawful abortion, um, which I mean, not necessarily like unlawful is in illegal, but unlawful is in like well, now it becomes a murder, like a like a lawful in D and D. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> lawful good, lawful evil. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, but also, so Aristotle really starts this idea that before quickening, mm-hmm. it doesn't count because it's still animal. It, it's not, not it's, animal. It's still it's a like, plant. It's still a plant, basically. Right. Like, I mean, it's mostly that he sees it as before quickening, there is no movement. There's no sensation of it being alive. So it clearly does not, like, have a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas after it has the soul... Like, after you've felt the movement, then, you know, it's it's fine. It's just a vegetable soul. So anyway, the point is, if there is no movement yet, that was when he considered it the, the point where the soul enters the embryo. Interestingly, he considered that the embryo at will gain a human soul at 40 days if it's a male, but at 90 days of gestation if it's a female. So basically, you have at least ninety days, <laughs> I guess. But I mean, I think this is, um, you know. Wait. So could you? Can you determine sex to a fetus at three three months? Like, if you remove it from your body surgically? Uh, I because I'm just wondering if there's a like because I don't so. know a whole lot about like. Yeah, fetal development because <laughs> that will never affect my life. Yeah, I but um don't know. But like, if you had like right this ancient DNC that they can supposedly do, yeah. and then they saw that it was a male one, could you could could you be prosecuted for killing it again? It's <laughs> It could, because, I mean, the other thing, I did forget to mention that there was, again, like, there was this idea, like, you have in the Roman Republic, right, there is punishment for abortion, but again, it's seen as the violation of the father's rights, right. that she, the wife committed a crime against her husband, but again, it's like, how often is this really being prosecuted, and also, yeah, like, for the most part, especially if you are performing an abortion like it's it like again we're doing like ancient dnc here i don't think they're able to do a great job of identifying if this is male or female yeah um but you know the the important thing i think to take away from that is 
right? The, the, like this puts the, the pregnant person in the driver's seat because right. they are the only person who can really tell you if there has been movement or not. Yeah. So, you know, there's this idea of, yes, the fetus does become like a person with a soul while still inside of you, but you are the only one who knows when that actually happens. Yeah. As compared to what we start seeing later. Um, the other thing that people often point to is the Hippocratic Oath, which forbids specifically the use of pessaries to induce abortion. Um, the use of what? Pessaries, which is like, I don't even know how you would describe this. It's like insert, like tongs. Oh my gosh. Like tongs that go into the vaginal canal. I do not want that inside me. Yeah, no, it's, um, so the point is, that is specifically what is banned in the oath. It is not just all abortions. Uh. So modern scholarship is, <laughs> more or less takes the stance of, okay, clearly from these other medical writings we have, from legal writings, from whatever else we have, like, clearly abortion was, like, fine in at least some circumstances. Right. And the oath specifically is forbidding the use of pessaries because they would have been more dangerous and can cause... Like, you're literally inserting, like, yeah, you ancient could, tongs. You could, you could then tear do, something. do harm yeah. to yeah. the person. Exactly. The already born person. Yes. Yes. To the already alive. Definitely Holy alive functional. person. We do start seeing, you know, a little bit of uh, different ideas once we start seeing the Christianity come onto the scene. That being, you know, different religious and political ideas. The way people were still, you know, going about this would have been more or less the same. Like, right. people didn't just, it's not like, oh, Christianity's the state religion, now everyone's gonna stop having abortions, they're just <laughs> going to stop doing things to bring on the menses. Like, <laughs> you know, no, what they're thinking about is at, at this point, there's, like, some little bit of different viewpoints being put out there. Mm -hmm. So you look at St. Augustine, who was had a huge impact on the, like, Latin Christianity, so, like, Western Europe Christianity, less impact right. on, you know, everywhere else, basically. But okay. um, So his views on abortion was that, right, like, after... It, it was quite similar to Aristotle, where this idea that, okay, if it's an early stage, like, it's still sort of this unformed being, and, you know, having an abortion at that stage is like taking seeds out of the ground after you've planted them. Like, it's not the same thing as chopping down a tree, whereas later stage abortion was a lot... So now trees are alive. Yes, yes. Trees are still alive. But, you know... But, you know, it's this idea that, okay, in the very earliest stages, it's fine, but once you get to the later term, it's having a, you know, now it, it has a soul again. So it's really, right. again, we're just quibbling about when exactly does the soul get in there? <laughs> when does it have a soul? Um, because I think the important thing is, right, there's this idea that if you, 
like it, it really comes down to this question of like when does life begin when does it actually become alive and like mm-hmm. a person rather than just being like an unformed thing inside <laughs> of you basically mm-hmm. um but we do see this like throughout the middle ages it kind of sticks with the same idea that and into the early modern period that if you're having a pre-quickening abortion it's like at worst going to be seen as a misdemeanor mm-hmm. for the most part like um you look at legal codes uh, in England from the middle ages like abortion is a misdemeanor but whereas yeah, sorry, like pre-quickening, so pre-movement abortion was a misdemeanor, so like you basically get a slap on the wrist. And even post-quickening abortion was seen as like a crime, but it wasn't homicide. Um, right. So it's kind of coming back to what we were talking about in our like infancy episode where we talk a lot about infanticide, where, you know... Um, you weren't supposed to kill a kid, but... Yeah, but it also, like, wasn't considered murder right. if you did it early enough. Yeah. So, yeah, that's part of that. But, yeah, so there were basically, I mean, I've tried to... That That's kind of the general vibe up until the early modern period is the... vibing with abortions. Just, like, the vibes. The vibes are pretty okay. They're like, you know, if it's moving, then maybe don't. But if it's pre-movement, basically all clear. <laughs> you know, maybe if your husband's mad about it, that's a problem. But otherwise, nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, again, we're living in a society where, like, at various times, people are either straight up leaving kids to die of exposure in the woods alone, or their kids are, like, and slash, or they have actual living, breathing kids dying because infant mortality and child mortality is so high that, like, abortion just barely registers as a thing. It's right. like, who... Like, like, who cares, essentially? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. It, it, I mean, it's not who cares. People did care. But, like, it's just not quite this, like, pressing topic. Like, right. it's brought up, but it's not the way we think about it in the modern sense, where it's, like, a big source of debate and contention and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we have a lot of different recipes, which I can go into for how people um, performed these abortions basically where they could bring down the menses mm-hmm. yeah that's what i'm gonna say um but we're going to do that in the bonus episode um for this week and i think the other thing so you can check that out on patreon do not do at home yes <laughs> <laughs> yes this is a uh, patreon exclusive Uh, I'm putting that behind a paywall because I don't want people being like, yes, this seems like a great idea. No, these were not great ideas. Very bad Um, ideas. Yeah. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that through this period, like, especially if a, like, how morally okay it was also really depended on your status. Yeah. So, like, but, but at different times, right, in different places, there would be different moral calculus right so like 
medieval Italy, right? Like, abortion was kind of seen as, like, yeah, it's, like, sinful, but, like, it's a lesser sin mm-hmm. than, you know, like, it's not murder. Right. And in a lot of cases was seen as, like, well, you know, if you're, like, an unmarried woman who, like, had sex outside of marriage and now you're pregnant, like, yeah, fine, abortion is, like, a sin, but, like, it's better to do that than to, like, ruin your entire life and your entire family's reputation, right? Yeah. Whereas, if you look at, like, early modern England and even into colonial America, it was basically the opposite view where it was okay if you're a married woman and you have closely spaced pregnancies and you're getting exhausted and like you are endangering yourself by having all these kids yeah it's acceptable for you to do something to restore your menstrual period which is basically having an abortion whereas it was seen as like doubly bad if it's like oh okay you've already committed the like quote unquote sin of having sex outside of marriage if you're like an unmarried woman Mm -hmm. And now you're pregnant, and now you want to, like, cover up that sin by having an abortion? Like, that's even more bad, 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 right? So, like, the way people have thought about who should be allowed to do this is is also very context-dependent. Right. But, yeah, general theme is people using different, you know, both surgical and non-surgical remedies basically to restore their menses was pretty much not really a big deal so long as it was happening before quickening and again the pregnant person was the only one who could tell you if quickening had happened or not so as long as you weren't like very obviously like nine months (laughs) pregnant like no one can like, you know, it's not like someone can tell at a glance, like, ah, yes, you are definitely 40 days pregnant rather than 45, like, you know? So it's this very, it's also quite hush-hush, right? Like, this is, these are remedies and things that are being passed around, like, realistically, this is, like, your mom or your grandma or, like, yeah, trusted female friends who would be helping you out with this maybe the town midwife but you know it's that that's the other thing is that for the most part male physicians can be involved and we do have recipes for restoring the menses in like medical manuals that male physicians would have used mm-hmm. i say male physician but it, you know only men could be physicians <laughs> um until quite recently like 19th century like yeah. late 19th century um so only then it was only like a couple yeah and they, they, they were practice. like three of them yeah <laughs> but like this is my my point right is that like yes men could be involved in this but for the most part this was a woman's realm right like yeah. anything to do with like pregnancy birth reproduction that was kind of the realm of women and midwives yeah and now that we have all that kind of background of what people did for the first like I don't know, the, like, most of human history. (laughs) We're going to get into the 19th century and why everyone went absolutely nuts about abortion and it suddenly becomes a big deal in the 19th and 20th centuries, whereas before it was like, hey, maybe maybe don't, but, like, eh, we have better things to worry about. Yeah, this is exhausting. Um, so, yeah, I guess 
like the thing to get into is sort of building off of the conversation that we had last week is that right sort of everything having to do with reproduction again was the concern of of women um and the freedom that women had to do things was very different from like how we think of it post victorians the victorians got like really all up in everybody's business essentially (laughs) um and it was it wasn't good and like we talked about right so there's this very sort of anti-sex sentiment anti-sexual freedom sentiment in the victorian period um that also has this strange and very particular feminist movement that comes out of it or women's movement that comes out of it as well um and this is sort of what makes abortion less of a like concern of women's health and women's lives and whatever and into this like moral question right like before this the idea of controlling births that it was okay for people to control their reproduction was generally just like part of life like it was just a fact of of life that you would have some control over this yeah and i mean again it's just sort of like you'd have some control and it it was like a very private issue yeah you know like it's hard to find records really about this because it's not this like it's not really up for public discussion in, in the way that we think about it now. Like, it's seen as very intimate and private. Yeah, and so what we have is, right, these movements toward um, women's rights more generally. Um, and, like, birth control played a major part in developing these ideas. You know, women needed economic rights, the social power and individual freedom and all of those things really sort of culminated with ideas about birth control and abortion as part of birth control writ large. Um, what we see to that is then a conservative response that wanted to use like controlling abortion and limiting access to contraception um, with essentially controlling women and like not even being like subtle about it like that was the purpose of it um there was this idea that in like these conservative parties that came up in the late 19th century um that access to unlimited access to contraception and to abortion would lead to sexual permissiveness and a subversion of tradition and family um and the word of god um so it's explicitly anti-feminist and it wasn't, this wasn't just like a men's movement, but like the, the idea that women could be a party that exists outside of the home and has the power to, to choose to be a part of like the so-called like public realm uh, was a major part of this. Um, and as we like move into the 20th century, this conversation about choice becomes a major part of like how abortion rights activists framed this, that 
you have it's part of these larger this larger system of women's rights the right to choose what happens to your body right um the problem that arose from that specific thing is that it didn't really um it didn't necessarily take into account all of the sort of structural restrictions that exist to abortion outside of issues of legalization um you had to pay for doctors at this time, much like you do in America today, because the U.S. is a backward death cult. Um, but, like, you're right, so you're paying for these services, and that means that a lot of actually working class women didn't have a choice um, to get access to birth control of any kind and also could not access abortions. Um, and that like sort of undermined parts of the the original radicalism of the women's movement that really focused on um these like social larger social movements that would you know expand opportunities and set up social supports for uh, poor women who had children who didn't have children who wanted to work who didn't like all of these things um but yeah, and that's part of why, like now, when we think about the like reproductive rights movement, we think of it as this very middle class white women's movement, as opposed to like something that was more sort of intersectional. Um, this isn't necessarily the case. Um, a lot of working women were. Uh, part of this movement but it's just it's a lot harder when there's not an argument for larger systematic change but just for legalization um and so the the thing that arises out of this movement right is that a a sort of more general awareness that abortions were happening um and that they were they were happening regardless of legal status in various places um and that there was a an inequality in access even for those who could pay for it because of legal restrictions and so in this like very liberal period of the late 20th century they're like people who can pay for something should be able to access it and that's when we get this movement um that culminated in roe v wade right um the women's lib movement and the legalization of abortion didn't cause like more positive attitudes towards abortion or cause like more people to get abortions or use contraceptions. It was that more people were using contraception and more people were getting abortions and the social ideas around this had already changed. Um, the real thing that happened with Roe v. Wade was that the idea of abortion as a medical procedure was really codified in law. Um, and this again, again had like good and bad sides, right? It, it really set it up as, as a choice for women to make but that choice had to be approved by doctors um right it's at the 
Roe v. Wade sets up the idea of the, the right to privacy, um, which establishes abortion as a medical procedure to be decided between a woman and her doctor, along with contraception and a bunch of other things. That leaves the choice to get an abortion up to the like practitioner, which a lot of women's rights advocates didn't love because then practitioners could just refuse to do abortions and if they were the only practitioner around like that was a problem um but also it really prevented a lot of moralizing on the issue what happens in the 80s though (laughs) yay um is this like neoconservative movement that comes up with reagan and the birth of the the like the movement of the right to life movement from a sort of fringe catholic group where it started which was mainly in the mid 70s a lot of catholic priests got real up in arms about catholic people even if they were married using contraception and getting divorces and doing things that people were just sort of generally doing that is frowned upon or not allowed in the catholic church and they were like ah you can't do this anymore and they started the Right to Life movement and a bunch of other Catholic priests were like, this is dumb. Don't do that. Um, but it became this big movement. And one of the things that happens is they start reframing this instead of as whether or not women should have access to this medical procedure or who gets to decide how this medical procedure gets turned out because they they didn't want to sound like they were anti-women by this point in time the culture had moved so far along that anything that denied the validity of um any social regulation of reproduction or that um that people didn't have a right to control their bodies or have a right to their own medical decisions was or limiting the rights of women more generally uh, would have like not flown in the early 80s, right? But what they were able to do was change the um, change the discussion from a discussion of individual rights of women to a discussion of the individual rights of fetuses, which is... And as we see in like the late 20th century, um, this right to life movement really takes off. It becomes one of the largest, um, like the largest lobbying causes, um, with some of the most passionate, like participants. Um, it's possibly the largest grassroots conservative movement ever in like North America. Um, and this is partially because of the evangelical movement of the mid-20th century, right? Evangelicals really took over Protestantism. If you talk about being a Christian in the United States today, most of the people who use that term are talking about being like evangelical, born-again kind of Christians. Um, and that really brought with it um so they sort of took over this this movement um evangelical christianity by the late 20th century had taken on a very political bent there was a movement um in the reagan years 
<laughs> there was a movement in the Reagan years of trying to integrate as many people as possible into the like quote unquote new right. And um, one of the ways that they were doing this was by making the Republican Party trying to move it away from being this sort of elitist, wealthy, um, like old money kind of we are the like financial power of America to a like more open party that would accept more people with conservative social views um, and be able to integrate them into the party and undermine their more leftist economic views. Um, and one of the ways to do that was to talk about traditional families and gender systems Um and that was how a lot of evangelicals and other sort of more conservative poor people got sucked into this right to life movement. Um, the anti-abortion movement was explicitly about controlling sexuality. Um, the anti, I have this wonderful quote, um, <laughs> from the book that I'm talking about here. The anti-abortion dis discourse has a pungently punitive aroma, often appearing in the, often appearing in the notion that those who would enjoy sexual pleasure must be ready to accept their punishment. The sexual dimension is always inflicted... Sorry. The sexual dimension is always inflected by a gender difference in that the punishment is to be experienced by women. Um, so it's... There's, like, this moment of, like, the 1950s and 1960s where if women are going to have economic power, if women are going to be working, if women are going to be outside of the home, then they should have a right to their bodies sexually as well. Then the 80s comes along and they're like, what? We're still Victorians. Um, and one of the things that is like that people will continuously point out as being like very ironic is that one, there's a double standard for men and women, but also the hypocrisy of the leaders of this movement, um, where there are so many sex scandals and indeed abortion scandals among these like Christian coalition ministers and politicians. Um, but that seems to like only make their narrative and their popularity even stronger because they can tout this whole like sin and redemption, like, oh, I was tested but I came through for the Lord and especially in the born again communities that is really powerful. Um, like it is, it's more, it's more powerful to have stumbled than to have kept a steady course in faith. Um, and Another, like, way that this organization really wants to, and I say, like, organization, but it's not one organization. It's now, like, this whole broad family of organizations. But one of the things that, one of the things that's really difficult for Americans in particular, like, U.S. citizens, is that the uh, right to abortion has struggled in the United States, particularly because domestic policy has failed to keep up with the rest of the world. <laughs> a majority of the world has strong um, social safety nets, especially for families. Um, so as women gained access to like the public sphere and are able to work, there have been more things set up to ensure that women get an equal wage, that there is 
um, access to family care, that there's access to medical care, access to all of these things that would affect women's, you know, ability to work and exist in the public on an equal footing with their male counterparts. Um, along with like a transition, especially in like Western Europe of ideas about who is a primary parent, right? Um, and what has really not caught on in the US is, I mean, one, all of these things, but it's partially because the, the American like zeitgeist writ large has been, especially since the 80s, unwilling to give up on the idea of the family wage. Um, the idea that husbands and fathers or one parent should be single-handedly earning enough to support non-earning wives, mothers, and children's children's <laughs> wives, mothers, and children. Um, and it's really this like idea that was put forth in the eighties that this was ever a real thing for a majority of Americans, which it like, it wasn't. Um, and has become like even less, of a, a viable option for m most families like um and so it's and so like right to life advocates really point to how like stressful the world is for mothers and how we should be putting more work into like caring for mothers and like protecting a traditional family when mothers are going to have to work because this like nostalgia for the family wage that never really existed for a majority of families um, isn't going to create stable economically stable families or economically stable mothers like what's going to do that is a larger broader like social safety net for women and children in specific um, and Right to Life advocates point to, oh, well, what was actually doing this is the feminist agenda that is bent solely on removing women from caring for their mothers and removing their, like, one true drive in life, which should be motherhood. Um, and, like, it's, this was a hard thing to, like, say explicitly because by the 1970s there were so many women who were working and who were like no i want to go to university i want to have a life i want to do that i have dreams and aspirations beyond producing children um and so they the the movement really was toward yes all of these things and we're going to talk about all of these things but we're going to talk about them behind closed doors and in our legal fights we're going to make this about the rights of embryos right and when you set things up that way, when you establish this as I am fighting for the rights of fetuses and make the fetuses people in a way that they have literally never been before in all the history of humanity, including the Victorian period, um, right? You're, you're setting up the system by which the the like language is one of murder right these women are murdering their children and when you do that it allows radical fundamentalists to believe that they are holy warriors which is why a majority of abortion rights advocates the people who are working in this area 
talk about how this is the same language that is being used by like other fundamentalist terrorist cells, um, which considering what happened in the 80s and the like large turn against nonviolence in this movement seems to be pretty like that's what happened. There were at least three doctors killed, a bunch of uh, five other workers were murdered. There were all sorts of um, like attacks and lists put up and stalking and uh, harassment of abortion providers um, in the name of this movement. Um, and luckily, like in the 90s, there were some court cases that protected people's access to reproductive care um, and stood up for doctors and providers against being harassed and murdered. Um, but they there really wasn't um, a move toward limiting the state's interference in um, like the the ability of providers to choose or how they chose to interact with patients. Um, and that's sort of where we are now. Um, right, is like now we've built this into such a moral distinction that we're essentially at a stalemate of whose rights do we observe a woman's or a fetus's? Um, because we've built this system up to create in our like minds this idea that, well, fetuses have always been children. Which is uh, not true. Which even in our discussion of pregnancy uh, at the very beginning, we were talking about like the way that this has also changed and like technology has changed the way that pregnant women like think about themselves and think about being pregnant. Like that's part of the, the issue is that like we have never before really the 1980s thought of fetuses as fully formed human beings with constitutional rights yeah no and i mean even like even when you look at like you know the, right uh like even when you look at the original like pro-life movement right like this was not about fetuses being humans this like being fully formed people with rights like it was a three-pronged thing where like you were supposed to be anti-death penalty mm -hmm. anti-nuclear proliferation and anti-abortion in that like from from the perspective of like it is very sad that so many people like economically and socially are put in a position where they need to have an abortion right like it is like we should be doing more to support people so that they don't feel that like so that if someone wants to have this baby they don't feel that they have to have an abortion right yeah. like because there is that side but of they it feel physically well. capable of yeah. being pregnant yeah, yeah exactly like if you because the the reality is right like the vast vast majority of abortions are performed due to like financial constraints like that's what it is and it's like it we could have had a movement for like universal health care and universal <laughs> child care and like better social safety nets so that people who do find themselves pregnant it like it's not going to ruin your entire life if you're like yeah i'd otherwise have this kid if i wasn't going to be homeless if i had a kid you know i did want to do a quick rundown of an alternative reality 
Okay. In my, in in, in you, you go across the imaginary line into Canada, where somehow we had a completely different divorce <laughs> situation. And I just want to break down how that happened. Real okay. Quick. Yeah. Because we did formally ban it in 1869. Because I so, was only reading yeah. about the U.S. Yes. No, and that that makes sense. But I want to because it's about bananas. It. It it's a bananas. bananas gong show in the U.S. But it's also Canada is one of I think like two countries. I think it's like us and North Korea who do not have any legal restrictions on abortion. Like you can Excellent. have an a, legally you can have an abortion at any stage of your pregnancy now before moralizing people come in here and start yelling at me 90 percent of abortions are performed within the first trimester so like the first 12 weeks um and the ones that are performed after that are like almost exclusively medically necessary yeah because the vast vast majority of providers in canada will not offer abortion care beyond like 24 ish weeks yeah um because after that point it you know yeah i have the notes um just a second the a majority of abortions that happen after into the third trimester are where did it go right so there's an issue of like the the so-called um partial birth abortions which is not a thing yes which isn't a thing so so because all all human tissue taken from a living person is itself living. So a living embryo or fetus enters the birth canal in almost all abortions, which means that according to the Centers for Disease Control, 99% of all abortion procedures would fall under a partial birth ban. Um, but fewer than 0.01% of abortions are performed during the third trimesters. These are usually um, precipitated by medical emergencies involving risk to the pregnant woman's health, severe damage to the fetus, or psychological denial of the pregnancy until it's too late for a typical abortion, a problem most common among poor teenagers with high levels of sexual ignorance and shame. So again, they probably wouldn't be seeking an abortion that late in their pregnancy if uh, we had access to sexual health um, education and also uh, they weren't it wasn't just going to be like financially out of reach for them but back to back to canada which is a fun (laughs) unicorn place when it comes to abortion again (laughs) we are one of the like two or three countries on the face of the earth that doesn't try to restrict women through the state with it well and people in general yes through the state um those in possession of, of uteri. Yes. I, I've i been reading a lot of the stuff from, like, the, like, 1969 <laughs> nice. uh, criminal law amendment, oh where it's, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit more gender essentialist, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, basically, what happens is Trudeau Sr., because yeah. we had Pierre, Pierre Elliot Trudeau, Daddy <laughs> Trudeau, if you will. No. He, um... No in, Trudeau is daddy. <laughs> I, I, I need to specify that it's on this one. <laughs> this is 1969, and he puts... His government puts in the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1968-69, to 69, which legalized some abortions as long as a committee of doctors certified that continuing the pregnancy would endanger the woman's life or health. However... This panel of doctors was, like, doctors were left up to, like, what they deemed health. 
<laughs> so a lot of the time they'd be like her mental health would yes, suffer. Yes, her mental health would suffer. Genuinely, like yeah. psychological. Um, yes. Psychological. Um, doctor issues. is daddy. Exactly. The doctors <laughs> are daddy. <laughs> Can I also say, though, through this same sweeping reform, um, the same bill also legalized homosexuality in Canada and contraception. Yes. And would be the subject of one of Trudeau's most famous quotes. Quote, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. And I just think that's an excellent point. <laughs> Those are my other favorite things. Um, and I then... mentioned my favorite activities at the top of this. <laughs> One was abortion. The others are homosexuality and contraception. <laughs> just, yeah, that's, as, as you know, as soon as you are, as soon as you go left of the Democrats, like, that's it. Actually, as soon as you're a Democrat or left of that. Yeah. I also any- enjoy taking from the rich and giving to the poor and uh, unregulated drug use. <laughs> I mean, I just have to put so many content warnings on this. Like- <laughs> anyway, and then what happens is, so for a while there, right, from 1969 to 1982, you have this situation where if someone wants an abortion, they need to go before the panel of doctors, which was like three doctors, and show up and say, hi, I want an abortion. And then the doctors have to say, okay, is your life or health in danger? And you have to do this whole song and dance to prove that you like need this. I have anxiety. I need a medical marijuana card. <laughs> you don't even need a medical card here. I know. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> anyway, but even still, between 1969 and 1982, there were... Um, about 66,000 legal abortions performed in Canada. Mm-hmm. And basically, you end up with a... Um, so basically, what happens is we have a doctor named Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, and he had been performing abortions without the approval of these committees because he was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why should I need a panel of doctors to decide if a person can make their own choice or not. And all this goes down. It goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in a 5-2 to two decision, the court held that Section 251 of the Criminal Code was of no force or effect because it violated Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So basically, what they state in this landmark ruling is that One second. <laughs> Anticipation. So basically, what this means is that it was ruled that any restrictions on abortion was a violation of the right to uh, life, liberty, and the security of person, and the right to not be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So rather than being a rather than being framed right as like, the right to privacy, like, in a Roe v. Wade sense, this was framed as a life, liberty, and not pursuit of happiness, security of person situation. Um, And that's essentially, like, there have been some some political challenges since the 80s. Um, Occasionally, there'll be, like, someone from the Conservative Party who's like, let's talk about abortion, then everyone else in the House of Commons is like, sit down, son. (laughs) we don't reopen that (laughs) shut up some things are not spoken of (laughs) um and essentially that's why we do not have any 
like legal restrictions. And again, like I said, the vast, vast majority of abortions happen before 12 weeks is up and very few providers are going to do an abortion after about 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because like that's when viability starts to Mm -hmm. be a thing for the fetus and it, it becomes a bit more of a moral debate at that point. But like legally you cannot be prevent like you cannot be legally restricted right from this and that that is why because it is framed as the this is a violation of the life liberty and security of person that were guaranteed in the uh like in our charter of rights and freedoms and i just think it's an interesting way to look at this like weird situation where like our two countries are like we border each other we're relatively similar in terms i mean obviously many many differences but like it, it, it's like we're like little funhouse mirrors of each other <laughs> where it's like ah yes yeah, so both have these like settler colonial nations that are like real big and <laughs> kind of have a lot of similarities but then you know on one side of the border it's like some of the most restrictive abortion <laughs> laws in, like, the entire world. Yeah, like, A, in the entire world, and B, like, especially within, like, wealthy countries. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of this border, you have, like, all bets are off, do what you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, I do want to also state that is not um, quite true. We do have a lack of providers, and that has been, like, in recent years, like, a big part of like for our abortion but that's not the like that's the like structural access versus legal structural access yeah so like that's our situation that we're doing right now where it's like um because yeah it is um paid for by the like single-payer healthcare system um but it's just a question of do you have a provider like do you have someone who's going to perform abortions near you and for a lot of people in more rural Mm -hmm. and like more remote areas that's much more difficult to access so it's still not like like legal access is not the only thing like as we've talked about in this episode like there's a lot of factors that play into this um but yeah i just wanted to talk about how we legally get to this point where you know the state stays out of your bedroom and that's that (laughs) excellent well that was uh abortion So glad you all had a fun time at our girls' night. <laughs> I hope you all cracked a bottle of rosé. Oh, gosh. Next week we get divorced and take away men's rights. Sounds excellent. Sounds like my average Friday night. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!